two, two people walking down a beach, an old man, a young man. The old man's picking up starfish that are stranded on the sand and throwing them back in the ocean. And he does that repeatedly. And the young man, in his cynicism, you know, says, old man, what are you doing? You can't possibly pick up every single starfish on the beach and throw them back in the water. And you know, how can you make a difference? And the old man said, what makes a difference to this one? And I think if we, if we look at our lives that way and we say, how do we make a difference to at least one? I mean, when I would go to bed at night, no matter where I was, it was kind of like, did I make a difference for at least one person today? So um, people find it strange. I gave out my cell phone number when I was secretary of the VA. It's still my cell phone number. I still get called from veterans and I still try to help them. I mean, how, how can you say no? Hey, this is Cal Walters with the Intentional Leader Podcast. I first want to thank you for joining us here today. Our mission is to help you intentionally lead yourself, inspire others, and make the world a better place. I hope you enjoy this message. Let's go make it count. Well, hey, everyone, and welcome to episode 79 of the Intentional Leader Podcast. I wish you all could hear some of my bloopers before I actually hit record. It's pretty funny trying to get my mouth working, especially in the morning, which I tend to record these intros early in the morning. I'm Cal here, and first, I just want to wish you a very happy new year. I hope you and your family had a wonderful holiday season. I'm really excited to kick off the new year with you. I'm excited to be on this journey together. And here at Intentional Leader, our goal is to help you live more intentionally as we try to live more intentionally and to help you become a type of leader that others love to follow. And like I said, we're on that journey with you. We're trying to become better leaders. We're trying to help inspire others in the most effective way And no matter where you are on your life and leadership journey, we want to help you grow. We want to help you get to the next level. And one of the ways we do that is by bringing on amazing guests and trying to tease out life and leadership wisdom that you can go and apply right away to your life. And I'm really excited to bring you today's guest, Secretary Bob McDonald. Bob served as the chairman, president, and CEO of Procter & Gamble, the largest consumer goods company in the world. While he was at Procter & Gamble, they became known for their leader development process, and we dig into that today. Bob was later nominated by President Obama to serve as the eighth Secretary of Veterans Affairs and confirmed unanimously. He's got just an incredible career, and we dig into all of that, including his story. We dig into his upbringing, We dig into how he was able to overcome his fear of swimming while he was at West Point, how he deals with fear in general, how he thinks that we as leaders should measure success. And when he was at Procter & Gamble, what was he laser focused on as a leader? How does he stay motivated through tough times and much more? This episode is brought to you by Higher Echelon Incorporated. Higher Echelon is a leadership development and organizational performance consulting firm providing human capital and technology services to optimize performance. Higher Echelon can help you prepare your organization to meet the rapidly changing, complex, and often ambiguous requirements of today's world by developing resilient and adaptive leaders, modernizing and enhancing your processes, and implementing transformational technology solutions. Maybe you and your team, as you start the year off, want to get a team like Higher Echelon to come and look at your organization and help you figure out where are some ways that we can be more optimized in terms of our people, in terms of our processes, in terms of our technology. So go visit higherechelon.com to connect with Dr. Joe Ross and the amazing team there at Higher Echelon and see if they can help you 
and your team. And lastly, I just wanted to let you know that we will be supporting the nonprofit military mentors by partnering with them for a one day in person live event called the M moment. It's going to be on Saturday, January 22nd, 2022 in the DC area. It's going to be a great event. A lot of great speakers lined up. We're going to have a booth set up there. So if you want to come to the event, check out the link in the show notes of this episode to get registered. And that's it. Hey, without any further ado, please enjoy this conversation to kick off 2022 with Secretary Bob McDonald. All right, Secretary McDonald, welcome to the podcast. I'm so pumped to have you on today. Welcome, Cal. It's great to be with you. I want to start by asking you, so, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I was reading as I was researching this, that when you were 11 years old, you applied to West Point. And, and that you actually reached out to Donald Rumsfeld, demonstrating some some interest in, in West Point. So one, let me know if that's true. And then tell us if it is true. Tell us about that. Well, that is true. Uh, I was always interested in the military from a very young age, whether it was uh, watching a television show on Saturday morning. It was on six o'clock in the morning. So I had to set my alarm to get up. It was called The Big Army. And that uh, was a great show talking about what the army was doing, uh, reading biographies of people like Eisenhower and Patton and MacArthur, uh, playing with soldiers when I was younger. Um, I was I always uh, aspired to go to West Point, and frankly, it was uh, my only choice as a university. And the reason for that was I wanted to, to live a uh, different sort of life. I wanted to live a life where I felt like I could help people. And uh, I felt that going to West Point was was a way to do that, a way to be of service to others. And where did that come from for you, this desire to, to help other people? Is that something that you gleaned from your parents or from a mentor or just environment growing up? Well, I'd have to give my parents uh, some credit for that, although I, I think it came rather um, uh, subtly or implicitly through uh, church attendance, uh, service projects at church, certainly the Boy Scouts. Uh, I was a Boy Scout, and uh, my father was our Scoutmaster. My mom was our den mother and Cub Scouts. Uh, in fact, one of my greatest uh, disappointments in life is that I never became an Eagle Scout. I, uh, I was a Life Scout. I was missing two merit badges. I was missing life-saving and swimming merit badge. And the reason was when I was younger, um, I almost drowned in Lake Michigan and um, became very um, scared of swimming. In fact, um, the going to West Point uh, and, of course, having to take the entrance exam, the swimming entrance exam, then having to take um, the multiple stroke swimming that we had to take plebe year. And then, of course, jumping off the 10-meter tower and doing all the survival swimming uh, helped me overcome those fears. Mm -hmm. but, um, uh, but it was tough. And I, I, uh, my parents would take me to swimming lessons and, uh, as a scout, and I would run out crying because I was afraid to swim. And so I, I tell that story to young people because it's important for anyone who's got a fear like that to have a bigger goal. And my bigger goal was to go to West Point, and I knew I couldn't go to West Point unless I could swim. So I had to overcome that fear. Take us to let's dig into that a little bit. So you got this fear of swimming. You get to West Point, and it's easy to think, okay, well, you just overcame that. But like getting to the more micro level of that, what did you do 
when you were in those moments of having to confront the fear? Was there, was there something you would go to? Was there just, I'm just curious for all of us who have fears that we're trying to overcome, what would you do in order to overcome that? Well, I prayed a lot. Uh, I spent a lot of time at the cadet chapel. I was a lesson reader and acolyte at the cadet chapel. So I prayed a lot and asked for God's help. Um, at the same time, uh, the whole statement of cooperate and graduate, uh, you know, the way we think about uh, helping others at West Point, um, I was relatively good academically. Uh, so I could uh, work, you know, as long as it was an honor violation, I could work out the answers to problems, post them on my door, and people who had issues could come in and I would help them solve the problems. Similarly, people who were good at swimming would help me with, with my swimming. And, um, and then it basically just got down to what do you, what do you want more? Do you, <laughs> do you want to graduate from West Point or not? And uh, I have to say the instructors at West Point were outstanding. As you know, they're, in those days, they were all officers in the military, and they saw it as their job 24-7 to make sure we graduated. And, uh, and they were terrific. Well, thanks for sharing that that fear too, because I think it's easy to to view you and all of your success and think that you've just hit home runs your whole life, never had to overcome anything tough, uh, which I know is certainly not true because you're you're human, and um, I'm sure there's been many moments of having to overcome difficulty throughout your journey. So when you when you sent that note to Donald Rumsfeld, what did he do? Did did you get an opportunity to interact with him or exchange some notes? Well, we should we should say that at the time, uh, Secretary Rumsfeld was my congressman. He was the congressman for the 13th district, which in those days were the northwest suburbs of Chicago. And um, I've credited uh, Secretary Rumsfeld many times. He's passed away, as you know, a, a few months ago. But I've credited him many times when I've met with him personally to to thank him for. You know, it would have been very easy for him as a, con- a member of Congress to say you know, go away, come back kid when you're a junior in high school. Uh, but he didn't do that. He said, you know, I'm going to open a file for you, uh, right to the Academy, which I did. Uh, he said, I'm going to keep that file open and, and updated with your help. And, um, uh, he was terrific about it. He encouraged me at every step. And, um, it, you know, you contrast that with my guidance counselor in high school, um, who basically said to me, well, Bob, there's no way you're going to get into West Point because you're not politically connected. And it's true. I wasn't politically connected. I came from a middle-class family um, who were not connected in, in political circles at all. And in those days, members of Congress would choose one person and an alternate rather than choose a slate of candidates, which they do today and is a is a much more preferable system. But uh, so I wasn't connected. And my, my parents, who were terrific about it, uh, I remember we one time went to a campaign event for um, for Congressman Rumsfeld at the time, uh, and I, I had to work my way to the front <laughs> to try to meet him and make sure he knew that he met me. Uh, but he, he was a terrific guy, just an absolutely terrific guy. Your parents sound wonderful. Did they help you with your original, uh, I guess, was it an application to West Point that you sent at 11 years old, or was it just a request for a nomination? Or It was a, it was a letter. Time, and then okay. I got a bunch of forms to fill out. Uh, and of course, these were the days way before the internet. This mm-hmm. is, we're yeah. talking. No uh, email. Yeah, yeah. 1964. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, um, no, I filled out all the forms. My parents were terrific. I mean, 
my dad served in the Army Air Force uh, at the end of World War II. He was in the occupation forces in Japan, but he was just there for, I think, 18 months to two years. So he never not spent a career in the military. And my parents didn't really um, understand where my attraction to West Point came from. I, I guess they understood that, but they didn't really, um, they couldn't help me much because mm -hmm. they didn't know much about it. And you may... You, you wouldn't remember this. You're too young, Cal. But there was a TV show back in the 60s called The West Point Story mm. that was every week. And it really it really made the place uh, look, uh, well, I can't say glamorous. because <laughs> you know, None of us who went there would say we had a lot of fun. But, but uh, you really saw the value of, in the education and experience that you had. So I wrote to him, we kept the file open and uh, every year I would look at um, what was the profile of the incoming class. And I would try to make sure that I modeled my behavior and my record in high school and junior high school uh, after the incoming class and what they, and what they were achieving, you know, whether it was a varsity letter or um, uh, class uh, uh, president or vice president, or, you know, uh, those kinds of things, key club, um, and those kinds of things. Yeah. And it's interesting too, to have this guidance counselor who really doesn't give you the encouragement, but then to find that encouragement in other people and your parents, the willingness to encourage you to go and pursue that, uh, even though there wasn't this political connection, but they, they paved a way. And then you went on to West Point, you were very successful at West Point, And then you went into the army, you, you served at the 82nd airborne division, which I'm, I'm currently at, and then you transitioned into business. I'm curious, how did you decide to leave the military and then eventually go to, to Procter and Gamble? Well, it was a very tough decision, a uh, very tough decision because uh, everything I worked for at that point was to have a career in the military. Um, but I had, um, I had completed the officer, the infantry officer advanced course by correspondence. I'd already been to airborne school, ranger school, Jungle Warfare School, Arctic Warfare School, Desert Warfare School. We did all of that as our deployments in 82nd Airborne at the time, and uh, because there was no uh, war at the time. And so I did the officer advance course by correspondence and passed it, obviously, uh, did, did well with it. In those days, that was done with computer cards, not with uh, the internet. There was no internet. And um, and I finished that and I went to branch in Washington. I drove from Fayetteville to Washington, D.C. And I saw my branch officer and said, look, at, I, I really like the light infantry. I love the 82nd. Uh, I'd like to stay in 82nd or, um, you know, stay in the light infantry. And as such, I think it'd be great if you could send me to the Marine Corps advanced course. And the branch officer at the time said, well, I'm, I'm sorry, we don't do that. And I said, why? Well, I, I know you don't do that, but. I, I would like you to do that. I want to do something different and I'd like you to do that. And I said, whatever you do, don't send me to the armor advance course because I went to um, a unit in the third armor division, a tank platoon in the third armor division on uh, army orientation training, AOT, as we called it. I think in your years, you called it CTLT, cadet mm -hmm. leadership training in the summer. And sure enough, I got orders to the uh, armor advance course. And, um, I called that guy up again. I said, you know, what, you know, why, why did you do this? I told you I didn't want that. 
And he said, well, I wrote it down. I must have written down the wrong thing. And I said, well, I want the Marine Corps advanced course. And he said, well, we don't do that. And I said, well, I want to be a light infantry. And he said, well, we don't do that. In those days, you had to be in mech. And I, it just dawned on me at the time that perhaps um, the army was so big uh, that it couldn't differentiate itself enough to to bring out uh, my best potential. So I, I I love the army. I respect those uh, love those who've spent their careers there. I just felt like I wasn't going to realize my full potential if I stayed there. And uh, so I looked around for different companies. I, I wrote to, well, in those days, again, everything was in by mail. I wrote to 125 or 30 different companies. I interviewed with maybe 35, an engineering undergraduate degree. Um, after I'd finished that grad, that um, infantry officer advanced course by correspondence, I uh, took an MBA at night and on the weekends from the University of Utah. And so I had lots of opportunities in the private sector, and I, I chose the Procter & Gamble Company uh, largely for the purpose of improving the lives of the world's consumers and, uh, and for the values and the people I met, uh, because it wasn't my highest salaried offer, it was actually uh, about the midpoint, median, and it wasn't uh, the highest potential position I had. In fact, they wanted me to start at the bottom. Um, whereas other companies like a company called Owens, Illinois, that was in Toledo offered me a position to be assistant to the president. Mm -hmm. And, um, I, I just, I just, while I saw, well, I thought that was a great job. I just thought the potential with Procter and Gamble was greater. And when you originally joined Procter and Gamble, was your intent to stay there as long as you could? Did you have, did you kind of have a goal or a vision when you originally joined? Yeah, I think anytime you you choose a career, and when I talk to young people, people I talk about choosing a career, not choosing a job. Mm -hmm. You know, I say don't get hung up on the title, don't get hung up on the salary. You know, is this a place where at least right now you can commit for the rest of your life? I didn't know how long I'd be there, um, but but I was there for thirty three years and ended up being um, chairman, president, and CEO. And what do you, a little bit more on that when you talk to young people, because you hear a lot of, especially my generation, millennials, we're, we're all about our passion and, you know, we want to find passion in our job. And, and that, that sometimes leads us to jump around a lot. How do you think about that? How do you think about finding yeah. a job and the idea of it being something that fulfills you or passionate versus just finding a job that makes you better or challenges you over time? Well, I, th I think about it in a similar way, but maybe come out with a different outcome. Uh, my point of view is um, I want to grow. You know, just like I said, I, I want to go to the Marine Corps Advanced Course. I was doing that to kind of grow. I wanted to mm -hmm. grow in a different vector, different direction. Um, and I wanted to grow at Procter and & Gamble. And, and the company did a really terrific job over my 33 years of constantly challenging me uh, before I thought I was ready for that challenge, whether it was a promotion to greater responsibility or a move abroad. You know, I, I, uh, in 1989, we moved to Toronto, Canada, where I ran our cleaning products business. Then I moved to Manila in the Philippines, where uh, I ran the, the geographic countries business. Then I moved to Kobe, Japan. Uh, where I ran uh, the Northeast Asia business. And then I moved to Brussels, Belgium, 
where I ran our global fabric and home care business. And um, all of those opportunities uh, were not planned and were incredibly challenging to us, uh, both to me uh, professionally, but also to my family. And we, we, that stimulation really, really kept us going. So when you think about your, the arc of your time at Procter & Gamble, obviously very successful in a set, I mean, obviously became the, all of those titles that you already mentioned over time. And I'm curious if you're to step away from that, let's say you're an objective observer who's just looking in on your career. Let's say you're, you're writing a biography, you're a storyteller. What would you say, what would be some of the specific things that you did that allowed you to be successful? And, and I'm, I'm thinking both the things you did, but also things that you might offer other leaders that they could specifically do to find success. Obviously, being growth-oriented, that seems like a key part of your personality and your mindset over time. But what, what are some specific things that you think you did over time that allowed you to be so successful? Yeah, probably not surprising to your listeners. I, I would say being purposeful. Uh, having this purpose about um, improving lives, um, you know, on, on any given day, 5 billion out of 7 billion people on the planet use at least one Procter & Gamble product. And whenever I would go into go to a foreign country or go into someone's home, first thing I do, get off the airplane, go into their home and watch them use our products, listen to them talk about what they needed to improve their lives. And through through that, uh, try to develop insights about new products or new improvements we could make. This insatiable desire to improve people's lives, whether it be on the grand scale of 7 billion people on the planet, or even the micro scale of the people I worked with every single day, that's, that's always, always been um, a driver for me. The second thing I would say is um, intellectual curiosity. Uh, and stimulation. I mean, one of the reasons my wife and I and our family enjoyed moving from country to country was the stimulation, the intellectual curiosity, the things we learned. Um, even to this day, I'm, I'm, I tend to be reading at least one book a week, sometimes two books a week, uh, and they're all nonfiction. And I'm striving to learn something I don't know. Um, I tell young people that if you're um, out and you hear a word you don't understand, uh, write it down, research it, learn about it, because um, you never know when that can, can be valuable. And the older you get, the harder it is to learn new things. I mean, you, you know, you probably will chuckle about your parents or um, young people at P&G will chuckle about their parents' inability to text message or they text message with one finger rather than their thumbs <laughs> or you know, a host of other things, but, but someday that's going to be you and someday they're going to be new things. And you've got to find ways to force yourself to learn new and hard things, uh, constantly. And that's hard work. It's really mm -hmm. hard work, uh, because it's not easy. I used to, uh, bring the, I, I trained the general managers at Procter and Gamble in something called general manager college. And I'd bring all the new general managers in every summer from around the world. And I bring young people in uh, and have the young people sit in front of the room and complain to the general managers about how bad their leadership is because it's not contemporary. You know, you, you don't 
you know, people were still remembering Peters and, and um, uh, Waters, uh, um, you know, in search of excellence, which talked about management by walking around. Well, I, I remember when I was uh, first became responsible for Asia hair care, living in the Philippines, I can't walk around. I can't walk to Australia. I can't walk to Japan, <laughs> yet I have to lead these people. So mm -hmm. there's got to be a new adaptable way to do that. Mm -hmm. And the reminder was to these young people, you know, eventually you're going to be sitting in the chairs of those general managers and people are going to be dissatisfied with your leadership if mm -hmm. you don't learn ways of doing things. What were you laser focused on as a leader? I mean, it may, it may have changed over time in these different roles that you're describing, but what, what were the, if you had to put your finger on one or two things that you were just really focused on and prioritized as a leader, what, what would those be? Well, first purpose and values. Okay. Uh, you know, when, when the previous secretary had resigned at the VA mm -hmm. and President Obama asked me to go in and, and, and transform the place, a lot of people thought the transformation was about more clinical rooms, more doctors, a better scheduling system, and it was. But the primary thing I focused on in the beginning were the values and the purpose, because here we were with, with the most inspiring purpose in the world of serving veterans, yet we had employees violating that purpose by cooking the books. We had employees lying, a violation of the uh, value of integrity. Uh, by saying that they were giving veterans appointments earlier than they were. So purpose and values is always the bread bedrock of any high-performance organization. Um, the next thing I would say is leadership. Um, any organization which is going to be a high-performance organization has to have a single model of leadership, and they have to make that leadership model um, uh, present in everything they do. So at Procter & Gamble, we had our own leadership model called the 5E leadership model. Hmm. Envision, engage, energize, enable, uh, execute. Those were the five E's. And we had behaviors behind each one of those E's. And the idea was you could then use that model to recruit people, to evaluate yourself, to do a 360-degree review, to promote people. It became the currency, uh, the vocabulary the culture of the organization. So that I did the same thing at the VA. We had at the VA, we had 75 different consultants, each with their own leadership model. I threw them all out because <laughs> that was a dog's breakfast in terms mm -hmm. of leadership. We created our own model and we made it endemic in the organization. Then after I left the VA in 2017, I joined something called the Partnership for Public Service. Uh, which is about helping the federal government, we created a leadership model that we're now training to the federal government. You can't be a high-performance organization without a culture of leadership, and you can't have a culture of leadership without a single model that affects the culture. I really love that, the idea of a single model of leadership. Was that the one that you just described, the five E's, was that in existence when you first came to PNG, or did that develop over time while you were there? No, it developed while I was there. There was a group of us, uh, Ron Taft, uh, Gary Martin, A.G. Laffley, my predecessor, CEO, mm -hmm. um, who worked together to develop that. When I became CEO, it was a three E model, okay. envision, uh, enable, 
and um, um, envision, enable, and energize. I added engage because you, you know you have to. I wanted to make sure the point of collaboration was important. And I'll get to that in a minute. And then second and lastly, execute. You know, because it doesn't matter how good your strategy is if you don't execute it. <laughs> yes, no execution's good. so hard. Oh man, I feel but like execution it's- is. You know, a lot of times you have a great strategy and you and you miss execute, and yep. um, and that's a bad thing. Now, the reason engage was important is uh, I'm a big fan of Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, and you remember he talks about. The lowest form of uh, life is dependency. When you're a, when you're a baby, your parents feed you; they change your diaper. The next level, you become a teenager, and you think you don't need anyone. You think independence is the highest form of life. And when you really mature, like I have, you realize you need everybody. And <laughs> yeah. interdependence interdependence becomes a method. And I think too often in leadership, we lose sight of interdependence, the power of interdependence and leadership. And we think too often that leadership is about the lone ranger on a horse all by themselves. And of course, cooperate and graduate is everything but that. I love that. That's so good. I I would imagine as you're going to these different, getting back to Procter and Gamble, the different locations that you're talking about, when you when you're going to these different locations, are you taking over a team? and leading a team at these different locations? Yes, generally. And sometimes you're taking over the whole geographic organization. Right. Uh, you're taking over an organization, but you're also taking over a business. And uh, that was, I was, I was very fortunate. Uh, I've led a blessed life. I was very fortunate because my first international assignment was in Toronto, Canada. And one of the things you learn about cultures in the world is the two countries who seem the most similar are where the most, most cultural risk is. Hmm. So the last thing you want to do if you're an American is go to Canada and say, here's how we do it in the United States. Or take the job of an American. Or if you're a German going to Austria. Or if you're a New, a New Zealander going to Australia. These are countries that you think of would be culturally similar but they're, obvious, they're, they're, they're actually the countries where the greatest cultural risk exists. Because you think about it, the population in Canada is so small, mm-hmm. and it all lives within like 50 miles of the U.S. border. They get bombarded with American media. They get bombarded with America everything. Because we got this big elephant. I think Trudeau called us an elephant uh, <laughs> it, you know, beneath, uh, south of them. And so the last thing you want to do is, well, what you want to do then is, of course, have empathy and spend your time learning about their culture. So despite the fact that if you checked my uh, West Point transcript, foreign language was never my strong suit, I learned the language and I learned the culture in all these different places. So uh, when I would address people, I would speak Japanese in Japan. I would try to speak Tagalog in the Philippines. That, that actually got me in trouble once. I. Um, accidentally introduced the CEO of the Procter & Gamble company in Tagalog as the, the chief criminal uh, of the company uh, because the word the word for chief criminal, uh, pangulo, is similar to the word for CEO, which is uh, pangulo, and they're spelled, they're spelled almost the same. So yeah, actually, it was funny because I, I was, there were about, about 5,000 people or so there, and I did this, and of course, they all gooped and hollered and stood up and 
they knew exactly what I had done wrong. <laughs> and the CEO who was my first general manager came up on the stage and he said, boy, he said, you really have those people, uh, <laughs> you know, inspired. And of course I told him the truth later that I had made a mistake. I knew I had a 50% chance of getting it right. And I chose wrong. Hey, you did it. You tried. That's good. You put in the effort. I, tried. <laughs> I love the that. Thing, the other thing you should know about me, I, 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 heck, I spoke last week at the um, American Chamber Hiring Our Heroes event, and I told a story. I said, you know, when my wife and I went to uh, uh, Manila in 1991 from Canada, Mount Pinatubo exploded. So our house was covered in lahar and, and ash. <laughs> And then in 1995, when we went from Manila to Kobe, Japan, the Kobe earthquake happened. So the joke within Procter & Gamble is you want to know where the McDonald's are moving <laughs> next to make sure you're not there. <laughs> Just, but I assured, I assured everyone at the, at the meeting that uh, no natural disasters were going to occur. And the, uh, the CEO of Procter & Gamble, the current CEO, uh, current executive chairman was there to speak. So uh, he could vouch for me there. <laughs> What a life. I, it sounds like such an adventure and, and so much fun. And, and it also, you, I think you highlight something I didn't even really think about because I was going to ask you about team building of these different organizations, but that cultural dynamic that, that you're having to navigate as you're going to these different positions. It's not just building a team and creating values and purpose like you talked about, but you're also navigating those, those intricacies oh. of leadership. And I love the word that you mentioned of empathy, of being willing to be empathetic and curious and being a good listener. Like I, I imagine that was something that was really important for you as a, as a rising leader in an organization like that. Yeah. Well, you know, Cal, if you, if you go in someone's home, uh, are you familiar with the product Swiffer? Yes. Oh yeah. <laughs> Very P &G familiar. PNG invention, right? Okay. If you go in someone's home and you watch them washing the floor with a bucket of water with what used to be spick and span, solubilized chemistry in the bucket, and you watch them mop the floor, they're not going to say to you, hey, Cal, why don't you take one of your disposable diapers, um, why don't you take one of your disposable diapers, put it on the end of a stick, and take some of your floor cleaning technology and spray that on the floor. I mean, they're not going to come up with Swiffer. So you being empathetic, you, the one in the room, you've got to listen for those things and, and try to, and try to put them together. I was in Japan. Um, are you familiar with a product called Febreze? Oh yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, it's the way college students wash their clothes. Yes. We joked about that. <laughs> but um, uh, so we were testing it in Japan and two of our Japanese employees came in to meet marketing people. And they said, you know, we've got a great idea. And it's called cycle of odors. Uh, and I said, and they explained to me in English. And I said, well, I, I don't understand the idea. Can you explain it to me in Japanese? So they explained to me in Japanese. I still didn't understand it. So I said, I don't understand it. But let's go to Hokkaido, the northern island of Japan. And I'll give you a man box. And let's test the idea and see how well it does. Well, it grew the business 35%. So we, we, we moved it to the rest of Japan. It grew the business 35%. We then moved it around the world um, later in my other role roles, and uh, it did equally as well. So sometimes you have to trust the people you work with and realize you may not be the smartest person in the room.
We call P&G a democracy of ideas for that reason. Whoever's got the best idea is the one who wins the day. That's so good. And But for your ability to or willingness to say, hey, I don't understand this, but let's go try it. I love that. I think that's such a great uh, leadership principle and, and an example of, of humility. Um, so I wanted to ask you really just generally, uh, kind of going back to leadership, what do you, how do you think we should measure success of a leader? Because I, I, I think, you know, I, I think about leadership a lot. And obviously on the one hand, you've got results, just, just pure results, numbers. Um, and on the other hand, I think about people, you know, people being engaged, happy. So I'm just curious from your perspective, as you've been around for a while and you've seen the highest levels of leadership and you've seen a lot of leaders when you're looking at whether a leader is being successful, how do you view that? Yeah, I want to I want to answer your question in two ways. So bear with me. The first yeah. answer will be a very direct answer. The next one you may not have considered. Um, I would I do it probably the way you would expect, which is, um, you know, did the business grow? Did the people grow? And did the leader do it in the right way? And what I mean by that is I've seen a lot of leaders achieve short-term results, both with business and with people, but burn the people out, do it in the wrong way, create animosity. Um, One of the things I dislike is, and I call it a cheap form of leadership, is what I call against leadership. Against leadership is where uh, you have to create a boogeyman. You have to create something to be against in order for your leadership to be effective. Um, Whether it's your commander, whether it's an outside organization, um, it's it's always about being against. And and I saw this at P&G, we had one leader who I described as an against leader. And it was was hard working for them because you didn't want to be against something, you wanted to be for something, Mm -hmm. but yet they got to be at the highest levels of the company and there was no longer a they to be against. They would see him, yeah. <laughs> right? And so I really dislike against leadership. And I think a lot of our politics has become against leadership. And I really think that's a very cheap form of leadership. We should ask our politicians to aspire to much more, to a positive level, a positive level of leadership. Um, the other way I wanted to... I want to think about, well, let me, let's come back to that question again. So I want to, I want to think about the next part of the answer and I kind of lost my train of thought. Well, let me, let me go to what you were just talking about with this person that you mentioned who maybe embodied or to an extent, this idea of against leadership. I think a lot of people have had a bad boss or maybe have a bad boss right now. And that can be discouraging uh, especially if you're a mid-level manager, you're trying to lead. You know, maybe maybe you're trying to employ some of these leadership principles that you're talking about. Any advice for how to deal with? You've probably run into a couple bad leaders in your time. Any any advice for how to deal with that? If you find yourself being under a bad leader, or even maybe maybe they're a peer of yours, just just in general, how to how to navigate that? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, it's my experience that people leave leaders, they don't leave companies. So anytime um, at the Procter & Gamble company or even in the military, 
when someone would leave, uh, I'd always want to find out who was their leader and why, why did they allow that person to leave? It was always my belief that um, if somebody wasn't performing and I wanted them to leave, that I would want to help work with them so that they recognized that wasn't a good fit and they chose to leave rather than me forcing them to leave. That's a relatively high bar, but if you're providing that kind of feedback to your subordinates, they should be able to draw that conclusion. One of the things I would do when I'd speak to groups is I would say, okay, um, everyone here who's giving sufficient feedback to their subordinates, please raise your hand. And of course, every hand in the room goes up. Then I'd say, everybody here who's getting sufficient feedback from their boss, raise their hand. And no hand would go up. And so I'd say to people, remind, you know, please remember that no matter how much feedback you're giving, it's never sufficient uh, according to the receptor, mm-hmm. right? It's never sufficient. And so how do you make sure that you're providing sufficient feedback? And, you know, I, I, I talk about leadership being um, an inefficient science. If you want to be time efficient, don't be a leader. It's inefficient. Yeah. I can't yeah. tell you the number of the number of Friday nights before a holiday or the number of thir- uh, Wednesday nights before Thanksgiving where suddenly that opening in my door would, you know, the shadow would come and somebody would say, do you have a minute? And of course you knew that that minute would be longer than a minute. It would be an hour, two hours, three hours, because they wouldn't come to you at that point in time if there wasn't a crisis. And, um, you know, you, you have to be available. You have to, Leadership is about sacrificing yourself for the betterment of the organization. You learn that in the military. It's why officers always eat last. Um, and you and and I think the military is a great place to learn to be a leader. You got you got to be willing to dig the foxhole before you ask other people to do it. And um, that's why I like the idea of Procter and Gamble. Everybody starts at the bottom. You got to get think, your fingernails dirty. That's such a good, that's such a wonderful perspective because I think it's easy to look at leadership as a title, as a position, as a privilege, a privilege in the sense of it, it you, know, you get the, the perks of leadership, not the obligations that come with leadership, uh, not the... Leadership. <laughs> Last week, two weeks ago, uh, the American Chamber of Commerce Hiring Our Heroes gave me an, a Lifetime Achievement Award. And I I refused it initially. And the reason I refused it is leadership is a journey. It's a journey. You're never done. You're, you're constantly adapting. I, we talked earlier about learning new things. You know, people misconstrue what Darwin wrote. Darwin did not write survival of the fittest. Darwin wrote survival of the most adaptable. So we as leaders are works in progress. We're never done. We're never done. There's more to do. Um, last week when I, I gave the talk accepting the award. Um, I reminded people of the speech of Teddy Roosevelt at the Sorbonne in 1910, where he talked about the man in the arena. And unfortunately, that speech now has been come to be known as the man in the arena. You know, don't don't be the critic outside the arena. Be the person in the arena. Yes, you're going to get bloodied. Yes, you're going to get hit in the nose. Yes, you're going to get knocked down. Sounds like West Point. Yes, you're going to have to get back up again. And yes, you might get knocked down again. 
but that leads to a more fulfilling life than simply being the critic outside the arena, you know, uh, criticizing the person within. I did some research on that before I gave the talk. So I was, I was um, serving at the Bush Institute for President Bush. I did some research and I discovered that the speech was actually called Citizenship in a Republic, hmm. not the man in the arena. Hmm. And so what, what President Roosevelt's telling us, and it's so true today, if you want to preserve this fragile thing called a democracy, this thing that's a work in progress, you got to be willing to get in the arena. Uh, you can't be the critic outside the arena and expect to preserve the democracy. Now, of course, every veteran has already been in the arena, and, and I give them great praise and credit for that. Uh, every service member is already in the arena, putting their life in danger, but we got to get everybody else in with us. That is so inspiring. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. I did not know that that was the original intent behind that speech. I love that speech. And uh, I, I want to ask you about that, just this idea of, of growth and staying in the arena and just because I, I, I find myself to be, I try to be growth oriented. I try to have that mindset. Uh, but there are moments as a leader or just individually where I get discouraged. And I wonder how you have dealt with that because it's great to be growth oriented. I think 100%, like that's how I want my kids to be. That's how I want young people to be because I think there's, that's just what makes you a better person. But what do you do when you have those moments of, of discouragement and, or, or even just exhaustion of trying to, trying to continue to grow and get better and, and, and make progress on the journey of life? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm blessed. Um, my wife and I have been married for 44 years. We met at the wedding of a West Point classmate of mine, and she was the, one of the best friends of the, of the bride. Um, and she is, uh, if I've learned anything about caring for others, I've learned it from her. Hmm. Uh, and as a result, she is wired the way I am. And we work together to keep each other inspired and not discouraged. Because you're right, it's easy to get discouraged. Similarly, my two children, um, you know, they've, they've heard my talks so often. I've always felt like um, we as leaders uh, are used to training leaders within our organization. And we sometimes forget that the most leadership title, most important leadership title we have is father, mother, or grandparent. I mean, I can tell you grandparents, the greatest title I've got. I got six grandchildren now. So if I can give a talk, I'm, I'm teaching at Harvard Business School on Monday. If I can talk to Harvard Business School about transforming organizations and purpose and values, certainly I can spend time with my six grandchildren doing that. And I probably don't do that enough. Um, then I have to say, and that this is important, so I should have probably put it first, but you got to have time to reflect yourself. Um, I journal every day. Uh, and on Sunday, you can usually find me in a church, uh, praying for guidance, praying for inspiration and praying to overcome that cynicism, which is so much a part of our society. You, you know, cynicism is a terrible thing and you just can't allow yourself to become cynical and you can't surround yourself with people who are, if you do, it's very contagious. And I kind of saw that at West Point. I was, <laughs> I was, 
I was brigade adjutant, which meant I was in charge of disciplinary program. And I used to joke that, you know, when you had one cadet, you had one brain, you had two cadets, you had a half a brain, you had three cadets, you had a third. You know, there's this crowd mentality that um, resulted in tremendous cynicism. And, and um, uh, cynicism is a contagious bad disease. Mm. That's, that's so good. Thank you for sharing that. Because uh, I think it, every person deals with that. It's just that, that, that there's that pursuit of growth. And then there can also be those moments of discouragement that we all deal with. And I love that, that you described that relationship you have with your wife, which kind of goes back to this idea of just the importance of community, the importance of having people that can speak truth into your life and encouragement and inspiration. Um, can, I, can I say one other thing, Kelly? I think yeah. that also um, it's important not to sell yourself short. So if my purpose is to improve lives and uh, I go from leading the Procter & Gamble company, 120,000 people, 200 countries around the world, $85 billion in sales, and I retire. Am I suddenly worthless? No, because I have the opportunity to use what I've learned to teach at least one person, help one person every single day. Hmm. So then I become the secretary of the VA. Well, 300,000 employees uh, serving 22 million veterans, $200 billion budget. I leave that in 2017. Am I worthless again? No, your purpose is the same, improving lives. And you got to measure that one life at a time and can't get um, cynical because you've gone from a large title and a large organization to something that's more small. You've got to find your way. Um, the purpose doesn't change. The scale may change. Yeah, I think that's also just you seem to have a very healthy self identity. You, you and part of that seems very clearly to me to be a servant of of a higher calling of wanting to help people, wanted to be a in a way a means to an end to be able to help be a vehicle through which people uh, people's lives get better. And I think if that is your vision of your life and of, of your purpose then you're right. No matter if that's hundreds of thousands of people that you're impacting daily or one person, um, I think that's- well, a to, to those of us who have been given so much, much mm -hmm. is expected. And I think in the end, we'll be measured. You know, somebody would say to me, oh, you know, you, you know, it's such a great thing. You became secretary of VA. Well, if I hadn't, am I somehow of mm -hmm. less work? Mm. Uh, if I hadn't been CEO of PNG, am I somehow less worth? No, I don't think so. I don't think that's the way success is not measured in titles or income. It's measured on the positive impact you've had on another. And sometimes, I, I, have you heard the story of the starfish? Lauren Isley's story of the starfish? I, I, that sounds super familiar, but it's not coming to me immediately. Well, two, two, two people walking down a beach, an old man, a young man. The old man's picking up starfish that are stranded on the sand and throwing them back in the ocean. And he does that repeatedly. And the young man, in his cynicism, you know, says, old man, what are you doing? You can't possibly pick up every single starfish on the beach and throw them back in the water. And you know, how can you make a difference? And he's, 
And the old man said, what makes the difference to this one? Mm. And I think if we, if we look at our lives that way and we say, how do we make a difference to at least one? I mean, when I would go to bed at night, no matter where I was, it was kind of like, did I make a difference mm. for at least one person today? So um, people find it strange. I gave out my cell phone number when I was secretary of the VA. It's still my cell phone number. I still get calls from veterans and I still try to help them. I mean, how, how can you say no? Mm. I love that perspective. And I think the, what you just described too, about if, if my worth is my title, well, if that's your perspective too, then that's how you're going to treat other people. They're not worth anything unless they have a title. They're not worth anything unless they are worth a lot of money or something like that. So I, I just, I love that. And, and that seems a hundred percent in line with what other people have told me about you and with everything I'm seeing today on this meeting. And I just am inspired, truly genuinely inspired by that. Um, well, uh, Secretary McDonald, I want to finish with a, a lightning round of questions, if that's okay. I, I appreciate you being so gracious with your time. Um, my first question is, you're forming a team of people. What are going to be the most important qualities of the people? Let's say you're interviewing them, you're trying to pick a team. What, what are like the top few qualities that you're looking for? Uh, leadership, uh, values, uh, and diversity. Uh, I spent a lot of time at PNG and VA putting together diverse teams of people because diverse teams are more innovative than homogeneous teams. What is one habit, routine, or ritual that for you has made the biggest positive difference throughout your life? Uh, I'm going to mention two. I exercise every day uh, and I read every day. What does a typical exercise in in a day look like for you? I do 35 minutes of aerobics. I try to get my heartbeat up to about 138, 139 beats. Um, and then I do uh, sit-ups. I try to do 50 uh, incline board sit-ups and I do weightlifting. And then I'm reading not my classmate, Bob Caslin, but <laughs> <laughs> he, he is insane. No, you guys are both uh, inspiring. Uh, what about reading? Is there a typical time of day that you read? Is there a way, a mechanism that you prefer audiobooks, hard, hard copy? Uh, I prefer books. Uh, but if we're traveling, I, I do listen to audiobooks. Um, I'm a member of, um, the, um, Amazon audiobook mm-hmm. group. Um, but, um, no, I try, it may vary day to day as to what time of day it is. But I'll I'll set aside uh, at least an hour and go and go sit and do that, um, even if it's before I go to bed at night. And top marriage or relationship advice? Oh gosh, um, my uh, wife uh, made me better than I am. My wife complimented me, and I would like to think I compliment her. And I think. Too often people enter marriage uh, thinking about um, compromise. And I I don't think about compromise. I think about complementary. So um, uh, marriages work. You work together, but you both become better people because of it. And you're not giving anything up. You're gaining tremendously. I love that too. And you've already mentioned your wife a few times. And I just, that's inspiring to just hear what an, what an important uh, role that's played in your life and your journey. Uh, top, mar- top parenting advice or grandparenting advice. 
or both? <laughs> well, I, I, uh, my, if my kids were on, they would tell you that they are so tired of hearing the West Point cadet prayer saying of help me choose the harder right than the mm. easier wrong. Mm. But um, I've seen that so many times, uh, and I could give you a biz- I could give you replete business examples of where the easier wrong was chosen. And usually in the beginning, it's a small wrong, mm. but it ends up being a much greater wrong. So you're speaking to a group of uh, soon-to-be college graduates. What would be your top advice to them? Um, Be purposeful. Know what your purpose is. Live your life by a set of values. Um, Work to improve throughout your life. Um, Don't pick a job. Don't pick a title. Don't pick a level of monetary uh, compensation. Um, pick a career where you might be passionate for it. I want to circle back. I got, I've got one last question for you, but I, I want to circle back. You, you were, we were talking earlier and asked you about, uh, how you measure success as a leader. And you had a few things that you offered. And there was one thing that you said you, you, you couldn't, you're at that moment, you couldn't remember what it was that you were going to say. It was a second way of thinking about leadership. I just wanted to give you an opportunity to see if it had come to mind. If not, no worries. I'll ask you the final question. No, I, I came back to it, Cal, and it was this, it was this thought of um, of the starfish of of one life at a time, mm. uh, which I found to be a very very powerful idea. It's not a title, uh, and you know, don't don't ever think I'm any better than anyone else because I've been given opportunities to lead. Leadership is a uh, a blessing. But with that blessing comes a tremendous obligation, and um, and you can lead you can lead at all levels. You don't have to be given a title. I love that. Uh, and I just, I just love that idea of just focusing on one person at a time because I think we can get, especially in the world of Instagram and Facebook and number of followers, and uh, it's easy to get caught up in wanting to meet some metrics, uh, versus just meeting the, meeting the needs of the person in front of you. (laughs) Well, we, I, you know, I, I take some responsibility for Facebook and others because we at Procter and Gamble, um, early on help train them. Uh, we, we exchange employees and train them or we're probably their largest advertiser. But, but if you watch movies, if you watch programs like the social dilemma, Mm -hmm or you watch a movie called Ingrid Goes West, you see how these kinds of social media stimuli can uh, lead to bad outcomes. And uh, it's really something everyone has to be concerned about. Yeah. Real quick on that. What are your thoughts as someone who really spends a lot of time thinking about our country and and the state of people, not just our country, I guess, globally, but any, any thoughts on how we should be navigating that? Or any advice to, to leaders out there about that particular topic? Well, the best the best leaders I know are homogeneous, meaning, you know, if they were um, like a slab of chocolate or whatever, you could cut them any different way, and you'd find the same ingredients. The leaders who I don't have as much respect for are those who compartmentalize their leadership who say, okay, I behave this way at work, I behave this way at home, that's okay, I behave this way somewhere else, because eventually that contradiction will get them caught up 
and I could give you lots of examples. You would you would know the examples because they can't you can't behave with that incongruency, that internal incongruency. And I think what social media does, it puts you in a position where the life that somebody's trying to lead on social media might be uh, incongruent with the life that they're actually leading. Well, don't worry about what your life on social media looks like. Clean up your real life yes. and just put on social media uh, who you really are. And if you if you live your life in the truest form, then and if social media reflects that, then you'll be proud of it. But um, there shouldn't be, excuse me, there shouldn't be different things. That's really good. Where goes west is a is a is a very powerful movie. I I I guess I should disclose a little bit about it, but it's about this lady who um, is attracted to the life of someone on social media, and so she gets her hair cut like this person, wears the clothes of this person, even goes and moves near this person, and then steals her dog uh, to bring her dog back and get ingratiated with her. Later, finds out that um the lady who she was trying to be like later finds out that this was all that the dog was stolen not really returned and um and then the girl who was trying to be like this other person attempts suicide and at the end of the movie in her in her hospital room you have all these balloons and cards and one of her friends comes in and says see you've made it uh, by attempting suicide, you gain the fame and the following mm. that you set out to gain that was attracting you to this other person. And I thought, oh, my goodness, that mm. is a great, great message um, about how how taken to an extreme um, these personas we try to create on social media can uh, have adverse consequences. Mm. Yeah, I am. I'm really, I'll have to check that out. I haven't watched that, but I, I am really concerned about what this is doing to our souls, <laughs> what this is doing to, especially the souls of our young people. It's hard enough for me individually to, to navigate it. Um, so I think that's a really, uh, I appreciate that commentary. Well, well remember, uh, remember at West Point, we learned about integrity and, 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 and they told us, and we knew this, that integrity is something you have that only you can give up. Mm. And your soul's the same way, right? Mm -hmm. Your soul is you. Yeah. And only you, only you can can determine what's in your soul and only you can give it up. Yeah. I think one of my mantras recently, uh, I think this came from John Maxwell, but just just the idea of being better on the inside than I am on the outside. I'm just really trying to to make sure the the integrity is 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 solidified in who I am. And I am not. I'm far from perfect, um, but just the, just that idea of not trying to portray something I'm not, not to be so focused on the exterior, but to really be focused on what's going on inside of me and, and cultivate that over time, over a lifetime like you have. Uh, and and hopefully Cal at 85 is is more loving, more kind of the things I have behind me, uh, the, the fruit of the spirit is more of those things than I am today. I mean, that, that has kind of become my, my desire just to be better on the inside over time. Well, me too. And I'm, I'm, a, as I've said before, I'm a work in progress. I'm not yeah. done yet. We, we all have work to do. It's a journey. Yeah. Well, Bob, I can just tell you, I have been, uh, I mean, I've done a lot of these. I, I have been genuinely inspired by this conversation today. Uh, I just feel uh, your, not just your life, just looking at what you've accomplished, but just the person that you are and the humility that you have and the, the servant 
heart that you have. So I just want to thank you for your life and for this uh, being willing to invest in leaders today on this on this conversation. I'll, I'll give you the last word if there's anything, it just you know, parting advice, Jeff, or leaders, anything else we didn't get to. Uh, but I just want to genuinely thank you for your time today. I really appreciate it. No, I think the I think the most important thing for all of us as leaders is to keep improving. You know, is to uh, learn new things. Uh, people would ask me at Procter and Gamble or at the VA what differentiates those who succeed versus those who don't, and I would always answer that it's the willingness and ability to learn new things. That's awesome. Well, we'll leave it at that, Secretary McDonald. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Anytime. Hey friends, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Secretary McDonald. I will say I was so blown away by his humility and just his heart for service. Everything he said on that episode, I felt was 100% genuine. And I just loved his reminder to do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. And being focused, laser focused on trying to impact at least just one person every day. We're never going to be able to make a difference in every single person's life, but who knows how that impact of one person might affect so many. And so I'm so thankful for that. Please let me know what what stood out to you about this episode. What stood out to you about what Secretary McDonald had to say about leadership? Is there anything you disagreed with? Would love to hear from you. I hope you go and have a wonderful week, make a difference in the life of at least just one person. Thanks again for being here on the Intentional Leader Podcast. Excited for a lot of exciting things coming in this new year. Really just a privilege to be on this journey with you. Please go and focus on the people around you. Remember that life is short, so let's go make it count.